This morning, let's turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I've got the old King James Bible in front of me, so it's going to use some old English. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse number 4. Old King James says this, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. The word that is translated in the Old King James Bible as allowed means the following. That means tested in order to be trusted. Tested in order to give the seal of approval. What I feel God is asking us as a congregation is a deep question that requires some reflection. And here is the question. Can God trust us with the things that are precious to His heart? Can God trust us with the things that are precious to His heart? This is a thoroughly biblical pattern that before God will trust us, He will first test us to see if we are trustworthy. We heard it this morning about going through the fire, going through the testings. God needs to approve us before commissioning us. A thoroughly biblical principle. Jesus mentored His twelve disciples continuously. He taught them. He trained them. He gave them assignments. He reviewed their progress with them. He gave them reports, spoke into their lives continually, assessed where they were doing, what they were doing. And the fact is this. When God raises up a worker, He will spend a lot of time investing in that worker, as we heard this morning already. A lot of time investing in that worker before he gives that worker a full release to pursue whatever ministry God has given to that person. One of the basic things that God is looking for is, can his chosen vessel be trusted? Can his chosen vessel be trusted? The very nature of the term trust means this. Trust is never freely given. It has to be earned. Isn't that correct? Trust is never freely given. The nature of trust is that it has to be earned. And so I believe in in line with what we've already heard this morning, as we are around the Lord's table this morning, God is asking a question of us. And I believe He is looking for a response He's looking for us to intelligently hear what He's asking, and He wants us to give an intelligent, thoughtful, think-it-through 
response. And that question is this. Can God trust us with what he wants to do? Can he trust us with his desires? Can he trust us to handle it properly? He wants to fully release his will to us, but he's seeking an answer concerning trust. You see, Paul, the apostle, who at the time was known as Saul of Tarsus, in Acts 13, it says, as the five prophets and teachers at Antioch, they fasted to the, and sought the Lord and they worshipped the Lord. And then finally, after many a long time had gone by in Antioch, finally in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit said, the Holy Ghost said, separate now Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And they were sent out in missionary work or apostolic work. But God had told that to Saul of Tarsus long before that, many years before that. Back in chapter 9 at his conversion experience, the Lord sent a man named Ananias, a certain disciple, to Saul with a very strong prophetic word. And that prophetic word says, you're going to go before kings. You're going to go before Gentiles and you will testify to the Jews as well. Uh, and he also gave this, I mean, how would you like to get a prophecy like this the day you're, you're saved? I'm going to use you. You're a chosen vessel to me, and I'm going to use you around the world. But by the way, be prepared to suffer for it. How many would love to hear a word like that within the three days of your conversion? Now that you're saved, you're really going to suffer for it. I'm going to use you, but you're going to suffer for it. And the thing is, with, with Paul the Apostle, with Saul of Tarsus, as he was known, how much time between Acts 9 and Acts 13, how many years have gone by there where he had a word from the Lord about what he should do, and he had a word about what it's going to cost him to fulfill that ministry, but before he actually got the commission to go out in Acts 13, there was a lot of time in between. A lot of time when he was hidden away for preparation, hidden away with a burden on his heart, hidden away with a knowledge of what God wanted to use him for, knowing all that, and yet hidden away in a time of preparation. How long did he spend in the back deserts of Arabia? How much time did he have to relearn everything that he thought he knew? Does anybody here besides me have to do a lot of unlearning so you can learn? Anybody? A lot of unlearning so we can learn. How long was Saul back within his own hometown of Tarsus, far removed from the revival that was going on in the city of Jerusalem? How long did he have to prove himself faithful and loyal in the place called Antioch and develop his ministry there before he was commissioned to go out as originally spoken over his life? In Acts chapter 9. When Paul writes his epistles, as we just read in 1 Thessalonians, he writes his epistles with a definite knowledge in his heart that God has been probing his heart all those years. God has been investigating and investigating and investigating what was in the man's heart for years. He says God proves us, tests us, 
um, because if we finish off verse number four, he says, and we were tested by God in order to be trusted with the gospel. We, so we speak. We don't speak as pleasing men, but we speak uh, as pleasing God, which is trying and testing and searching out what's inside our hearts. Now, Paul the Apostle, he was overwhelmed. As I read his epistles, he was overwhelmed at the mercy and the grace that God had shown to him. Flip over to 1 Timothy with me. Just go forward a couple of books in your Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And let me read verses 11 and 12 to you. 1 Timothy 1 verses 11 and 12. Now, he's an older man when he writes to Timothy. He's, he's, he's been in the ministry for a long, long time and he writes this. But he says in verse 11 of chapter 1, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, now listen to this, which was committed to my trust. And I want you to hear the word trust. God trusted me. And He committed something to me because He thought He could trust me. Keep on reading in verse number 12. He says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me for that He counted me faithful putting me into the ministry. He had to prove this thing called faithfulness before there was a commitment of a trust in him. And Paul could hardly get over the fact that God had actually, of all people in the world, trusted him. Because you know his testimony. He opposed the church. He murdered Christians. He put them in jail. He wrought havoc in the church and if there's anybody who should not be trusted, you would think it was Saul of Tarsus. But, but we have to have this sense. And what causes us to be the kind of people that God needs us to be, it should be this overwhelming sense of the grace of God that we have received. Are you overwhelmed with it? Because both you and I know we don't deserve it. Amen? We don't deserve this grace. And yet, God, because God is love of His own free will, poured out such lavish mercy and lavish grace on people who didn't deserve it then, and you know very well we don't even deserve it now. And yet, such overwhelming grace. And Saul of Tarsus could not believe that there could be such abundant grace. The older Paul got, the more full of wonder he is at it. Because early in his ministry, he would write 1 Corinthians 15, and he would say, I'm the least of the apostles. And then later in his life, and he's in prison in Rome, and he writes Ephesians in chapter 3, his assessment was, to me was this grace given to preach, and I am not just the least of the apostles, I am less than the least of all saints. And then when he writes Second Timothy, near just before he's about to be executed, his assessment was, I can hardly believe that God would choose anybody like me, knowing what my past is. And he says, and this is a faithful saying, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of which I'm chief. 
And his sense of the grace of God only increased with time in his life. And yet, because God has been so gracious to you and to me, then he turns around and he says, now I'm looking for people who are ready to pay the price. I'm looking for people who I can trust because what I want you to do is not an easy task. What I want you to do is fraught with dangers and sufferings and difficulties. And I need people who are so overwhelmed at a sense of grace that when the going gets tough, there's going to be this gratitude in your life that will never let you give up, no matter how difficult my will will be for your life. You follow what I'm saying? That it's a difficult task that God has asked us to do. And it's fraught with dangers and full of disappointments and full of heartaches and full of pains as we work through every stage and the battles that are before us. And it can be heartbreaking at times. It really can be heartbreaking at times. But God wants to know that He can trust people with the future as difficult as it might get sometimes. And what makes us those people that He can trust is that we are overwhelmed with such a sense of gratitude that there's something on the inside of our hearts that says there's no way I can let God down no matter how difficult it gets. God will test the hearts in order to trust us. If we use Paul as an example, the work of the gospel is not easy. Just read the book of Acts. Read his own testimony in 2 Corinthians 11 and 2 Corinthians 12. When he talks about outside pressures, when he talks about trials, when he talks about persecutions, when he talks about afflictions, when he talks about oppositions, nobody here has got the testimony that I was stoned to death once. Nobody here has said I've been in three shipwrecks. Nobody says five times I've got the 39 lashes. None of us, thankfully, have experienced any of that. But we have experienced in-kind pressures and trials and hardships and disappointments, oppositions. And besides all the outside pressure as we engage the world with the gospel, a lot of times there's inward pressure too because you can't get involved in this work without experiencing a fair amount of heartache with people. And you get disappointments in people. And because you deeply care, it all comes with the territory and it takes its toll on you mentally and it takes its toll on you emotionally. Can God trust you when you go through the difficult times? Can He trust us to be faithful? Can He trust us to be loyal in the difficult times? Paul was, was, was told at the outset... What I'm asking you to do is difficult, and you will suffer for my sake. I'm going to suggest to you uh, a few areas that God wants to test us in. This is generally speaking to anybody who can listen to this, but it's also, I believe, specific to us as a congregation at this time in our history. I'm going to suggest to you some questions that need to be proved to God so He can trust us with the mission. The first question is this, is the gospel precious to you personally? Is the gospel precious to you personally? 
I've already mentioned this about how Paul was overwhelmed at the grace that was given to his life. And Paul could never get over the fact that God would trust him because he, of all people, considered himself the most unworthy person to be trusted by God for absolutely anything. The message of the Gospel, I know, was very precious to Paul personally because he would say in 1 Timothy 1 and 16, if we would have kept reading in 1 Timothy, he says, I have to present myself as a trophy of God's grace. I have to present myself as an example of what God can do. And if God can transform my life, and I was a murderer, a blasphemer, I injured the church, and if God can transform me, look at my life as a pattern of what God can do for other people. And he personally knew the power of the gospel in his own experience. We have to be careful that we don't become so familiar with things that the fact is, it's familiar more than it's precious. Amen? That it's familiar more than it's precious. And then here's the question, and this is going to sound strange to ask such a question, but how well do we know the gospel? How well do we know the gospel? Because from my point of view, from where I sit, it has been reduced down to just a couple of statements that you could write on a napkin and say, there's the gospel, as if you could get the gospel message out within five minutes. Oh dear. How well can we articulate what the gospel is? Can we explain to others what the message of the kingdom of heaven is? Have we grounded ourselves in the full message? Um, do we know our message? Do we walk in the power that's needed to set captives free? Have we demonstrated faithfulness when things don't go so smoothly? Have we shown loyalty while we're waiting and being, and being molded? How well do we know this message that we're proclaiming? Do you understand the teaching about the parables of the kingdom? Do we understand who Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are the poor? Do we understand what it meant, what it means to say that Jesus stepped into the role of Old Testament Israel and succeeded where they failed? Do we understand the importance of the baptism of John the Baptist in preparing for Jesus? Do we understand the life in the kingdom? Do we understand how Jesus regarded himself and what he thought about himself? Do we understand what Jesus taught about the future of the kingdom when he comes back the second time? Do we understand the passion of Jesus, what he went through? All of that is the gospel. And folks, I can't reduce that to four statements on the back of a napkin. <laughs> and yet the message that we proclaim that liberates people's lives is all of that. It's all of that. You can't omit any of it. All of that is the gospel. When Paul the Apostle preached the gospel, he included all of those things. All I have to do is read through 1 Thessalonians, and about two-thirds of what I just said to you is within 1 Thessalonians. It's all there in his proclamation of the gospel. And I have it on my heart, and I'm just seeking the Lord how to go about it.
is I, I, I really want to lay out all of those things for us as a congregation. And I want to write it out and put it in print and get you to have it in your hands so we understand the message. The fullness of the message that, that the world needs to hear. And if we're not fluent in knowing those things, and if we're not fluent in being able to understand them and articulate them, then the question is, are we willing to learn? Are we willing to put the effort in to learn it? Because it is the message that sets people free. Number one, is the gospel precious to us? Are you familiar with it? Is it alive inside your heart? Is all the themes of the gospel alive inside? Let it not just be familiar. Let it be precious to us. The second question, I believe, is this. Is the harvest precious to us? Do we love the harvest? Do we love the harvest? Do we play a numbers game? Or is each and every individual deemed precious? Do you have names to people, or they're just, well, so many came to the Lord, or you've got names? Are they precious? You see, when Jesus sent his disciples out, Matthew 10, 6, he says, I send you to the lost sheep of Israel. And I take note of the word, the lost sheep. I want you to notice he didn't say, I'm sending you out to the lost cattle. And there's a big difference there. Because cattle are not very personal, but sheep are. Sometimes I see mass evangelists, and, and uh, one of the weaknesses, I think, of mass evangelism and, and with the great crowds of people and the thousands, and then the, the man of power comes along to lay hands upon people, and he just kind of goes, slaps them on the head a little bit, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. You don't treat sheep like that. Maybe cattle, but not sheep. You know, and the lost out there are sheep. And they need compassion. And they need care. And they need sensitivity. Is the, pre- is the harvest precious to us? When the meeting is over, do we have the care of those people in our hearts? Or are we just glad somebody came to an altar? Is the harvest precious to us? Now, what does the harvest mean to God? Now, listen to me carefully, because I don't think I will ever be able to adequately understand, and I don't think I will ever, no matter how long I live, have the power or the ability to properly articulate what the harvest means to God. I don't know if I could ever do that. So I trust God can do stuff that I can't do. Of course, I know He can but I'm trusting that you don't hear me. I'm trusting that you hear God. I know sinners are made in His image. I know that God feels deep pain when a sinner perishes. I know the Bible says He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I know that He loves the lost deeply and He loves them sacrificially. I know that He has invested, and listen to this, He has poured out all the resources of heaven for the sake of the lost. He has given His Son 
He has given His Spirit. What else can He do for their sake? He's given His Son. He's given His Spirit. But now there's another element to the equation. He's given His Son. He's given His Spirit. Now He wants to give His church to the harvest. Think about that, please. He's given His Son. He's given His Spirit. Now He wants to give His church. That's a deep thought. Can He trust us with that same mission? When you and I look at the lost, what do we see? Let me see it try to see it from God's perspective. The lost are people who should be making up God's family. The family of God are out there. Now, concerning the issue of trust, if you had to trust your family into somebody else's hands. If circumstances were such that you can't care for your family because whatever reason, you just not can't be there, who would you trust your family to? Anybody? Would you just... Okay, here's my daughter. You, you just, I'm, you're a stranger to me, I know. I haven't got a clue who you are, but here, just would you look after her while I'm gone? Anybody here do that? Anybody? Why not? Because here's the fact is, the more you love something, the less you trust people with it. Isn't that the truth? The more precious something is to you, the less people you would trust with it. And if you're going to trust what is precious to you, you have to make sure they have earned a high level of trust. Folks, outside these walls is the family of God that needs to come in. They are the family of God. Who can God trust with them? Or put it this way, they are the house of God, the temple of God. If you had lived your whole life, husband and wife, and you've been poor your whole life, but you've always had this dream that we're going to retire and we're going to have our own little dream house. And you have planned for years to get this little dream house together. And now you're coming to the point where you've saved your whole life and you, it's going to be a possibility. And now it's time to actually build your dream house after decades and decades of dreaming about it. I mean, you can just see it all planned out in your heart and your mind and you just know how it's all going to be laid out. Let me ask you a question. Who are you going to trust to build it? Just anybody? I mean, would you come to me and say, Eugene, would you build that house for me? <laughs> Never. No, no, look at that. No, no, no. No. And why wouldn't you trust me with it? Well, you could be honest. <laughs> In other words, I haven't demonstrated any skill whatsoever in that. And you know that if you trusted me with it, you would inherit a disaster. 
Uh-huh. You would inherit a disaster. I mean, I look at some of the workers we've got here in this congregation, and I just scratch my head. How do they do that? Second nature to them. And I frustrate me to no end. But the point I'm making is this. Who's God going to trust with the building of His house? Who's He going to trust? Because it's His dream. It's His goal. It's His heart. It's His dream. I will build my church. Who is He going to trust with that assignment? Or put it this way, the church is the body of Christ and those who are not saved are to be members of the body of Christ. Now within our own congregation, we've had a variety of people that have needed operations on their bodies. Would you trust me to do a kidney transplant? No. I'd probably do a worse job than building a house. Who are you going to trust to do a heart operation? Who are you going to trust to do a back operation? Who are you going to trust to a kidney transplant? Who are you going to trust to deal with cancer should that ever happen to somebody? You just take anybody off the street and say, would you do an operation? Or do you want to make sure whoever does that operation is highly, highly skilled, has got the paperwork to show it? Who would you trust? The lost out there are to be members of the body of Christ. Who has God, will God trust? Or one more thought, the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. If you are just married and your work forces you to go on the other side of the world for a couple of months and you're separated from your bride, she needs to be looked after. Who are you going to trust to look after her? To whom would you commit her care? Who? Anybody? I'm repeating myself, and that is the more precious something or someone is to you, the less people you trust. That's the nature of trust. It has to be earned. And here is such a powerful thought. The harvest is precious to God. What he sees is his family. What he sees is his house. What he sees is his body. What he sees is his bride. To whom can God trust those things to? Another area is that God wants to look at is this. God needs people who will stick with it. People who will overcome the discouragements that go with the work. It's not easy to glean the harvest. It's not easy to transform a harvest to make them look like the family of God or the temple of God or the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. To glean the harvest means you and I have to go into enemy territory. 
It means the work is fraught with hardships, disappointment, dangers, hindrances, obstacles. Just read the book of Acts and see how difficult it can be. The lives of the apostles were constantly being threatened. They were hated by the world. They often went into areas that could be considered spiritual war zones. Who can handle it? And yet, folks, that's where the harvest is. That's where the harvest lies. There's something I can't quite understand is why we pray, Lord, bring them in. I don't understand that prayer. And I'll tell you why I don't understand it. Because Jesus didn't say to pray that they would come in. He would say, go to them. Go to them. So we're not to pray that the Lord would bring them in. We're to pray, Lord, empower us to go to them. And we have to go into their world. And we have to go into their lives. And uh, they, they lost don't even know who they are. They don't even know they're created in the image of God. They don't even know their own value. We have that message. So can we be bold? Can we be courageous? Have we got the knowledge that we need to do the job? Do we know our message? Have we demonstrated our passion by consistently calling out to God in prayer? If you read Acts 17 and 1 Thessalonians together, you can see an example of when Paul said, we are allowed, tested by God, to be trusted with the gospel, even so we speak. But you read Acts 17, you read First Thessalonians to get an understanding of the background, of the struggle, of the of the opposition that they had. I mean, it was I mean the believers Acts 17 were physically beaten, they were threatened with treason against the Roman Empire, and they were threatened with the loss of all their worldly possessions, the loss of their jobs, the loss of their homes. They were threatened with the loss of everything because they embraced the gospel. And yet the fact is, in the midst of much affliction, to the glory of God, they had revival in Thessalonica, uh, and the testimony of what happened to those pagans, idolaters, demon worshippers who were converted by the power of the gospel had such a powerful testimony that it says their testimony reverberated around the world and before Paul got to anywhere to preach, the testimony of the Thessalonians had gone before him. And that all that happened in the midst of much affliction. So how did Paul behave himself? Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 where we started. How did he, knowing that this was his mission, and knowing that, that he'd always be facing difficulties in that mission, in, in chapter 2 verse 4, let me read it again. As we were allowed or tested by God in order to be trusted with the gospel, even so we speak. We don't speak as pleasing men, but we speak as pleasing God who is testing our hearts. He had the full knowledge at all times that God was always examining the motive that's going on in the heart. God needs people of integrity. If our message is the grace of God, then the messenger must be the most gracious person they've ever heard. If our message is the mercy of God, then our lives must demonstrate mercy. If our message is the love of God, we must be exuding compassion at all times. 
And the apostles needed, in read 1 Thessalonians, they needed to visibly demonstrate that their motives were always pure. If you read through this chapter, they said, I'm not a charlatan. I haven't come to take advantage of the people. I'm not interested in their money. I'm not interested in gaining a personal following. I'm not interested in building up an image of my ministry so I could advertise around the world the revivals that I have. In other words, Paul would say, I never came with any hidden agenda. What motivated the apostles to the work was very simple. They were overwhelmed that they themselves had received grace. That's what motivated them. I am a recipient of undeserved grace. So overwhelming. And then to think that after God has invested His Son, and after He has invested His Spirit, now God wants to invest me in that work. Does that compute? Does that compute? He's invested His Son. He's invested His Spirit. Now He wants to invest us into that work. He's done His part. The Holy Spirit's doing His part. Now He's asking the church, will you do your part? We finished the job. He started it, but it's going to be finished through us. And it's a matter of trust. How could we do anything less when it is God Himself who is looking for people who can trust? Years ago, Darla and I had a speaker in back in Canada, and he just spent a week at going through 2 Corinthians 4 and 5. His message was very simple. He says, in God's plan to bring salvation to the world, He's assembled a staff of four. A staff of four. Number one is His Son, Jesus. Job description. Go and die and be raised from the dead. Now that's a short job description, but and you and I know that that's not our responsibility. We're not going to die for the salvations of the world. We may die in the process, but we're not, it's not our shed blood that's going to save anybody. We know that. The second that God has put in this staff is the Holy Spirit. His job description is to convict this world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And this is where some people get confused because some people think that is their job. I'm to tell people how bad they are. I'm to convict them. I'm to apply the pressure to them. Folks, you're in the wrong job. That's not your job description. That's the Holy Spirit's work, not ours. Now, He may use us if He chooses, but it's not our responsibility to tell people how terrible they are and try to force them. You know, that's not our job. That's the Holy Spirit's work. Let's not confuse the role. 
The third staff member he has is his host of angels. Hebrews 1.14, he sends, their angels are minister, uh, sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. And you can see a lot of their work in both Old Testaments and, and New Testaments and their intervention in the stories and the history of people and the angels. But one of the great things is one of the responsibility of the angels is warfare up in the heavens. And Michael and his angels fought with the devil and the dragon and his angels or the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece and, and all this warfare going up in the heavens. I'm so glad that's not my responsibility. I'm going to say that again. I'm so glad that's not my responsibility. There is spiritual warfare in the heavens, but thank God for Michael and his angels, he'll do a whole lot better job than me. And yet there's been so much teaching about spiritual warfare based on Ephesians 6, but we're reading things into it that aren't there. We got so much teaching on spiritual warfare is we want to put guns and ammunition into people's hands. Now go at it. The problem is when you put guns in the hands of people who don't know what they're doing is they shoot all right and they shoot the wrong people. And so much damage and hurt has been done in the body of Christ in the name of spiritual warfare. It's not my job description to wrestle up there in the heavens. Michael and his angels are quite good without me. That's probably going to open up a can of worms for a whole bunch of other teaching, won't it? Well, what about Ephesians 6.12? I can hear all the minds going now. Well, another time. But then God's got another member to the staff. It's called the church. Our responsibility is not to go die on a cross. Our responsibility is not to convict people of their sin. Our responsibility is not to take on the Prince of Northern Ireland up in the heavens or something of that nature. Our responsibility is very simple. Our responsibility is to demonstrate the love of God. Did you catch that? Now, that's a simple job description. Our responsibility is to proclaim a message of grace and mercy and love and exude that grace and mercy and love. And the other members of the staff will take care of their parts. That's our responsibility. Isn't that a simple job description? Simple. And um, can God trust us? Can God trust us? And I believe that he is specifically asking that question because the harvest is precious to him. Who can he trust it to? And I believe the Lord is asking that very question. Because sometimes we just assume things without really thinking through the implications of what we're getting involved in. And I want us to know very well what we're getting involved in. We're getting involved in the ministry of the kingdom of heaven. We're getting involved in a ministry that sets people free that liberates people, that heals sick bodies, that saves people's souls. 
But with that comes responsibility. And we need to understand what that, those responsibilities are. With that work come challenges, and it's not always easy. It's not always easy to go into enemy territory, so to speak, and go where they are. And it's not always easy to, to be exposed to the heartache and the pain and the disappointments that sometimes come. It's not an easy thing at all. But the harvest is worth fighting for. The harvest is precious. But there are difficulties with it. There are hardships with it. There are challenges that come with it. And God wants to know, can He trust us with the mission? Can He trust us with the mission? He will test our hearts with the view to trusting us with what He wants to do. That's a question we need as a congregation to seriously think about. Is the gospel precious to us? Is the harvest precious to us? And can we keep on going in the difficulties that the work sometimes entails? God is looking for people who will answer yes to those three questions. Is the gospel precious to me? Is the harvest precious to me? Can God count on me to be faithful when the work gets tough? Something that's pretty direct, isn't it? Pretty direct. But I do believe that's the heart of what God is saying. I would just, on your own time, read 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 down to verse 13. Just read it on your own time. And then you will see attitudes. that Once Paul knew he was trusted, you could read those first 13 verses of chapter 2 and glean for yourself. Ask the Lord to show you out of those verses the attitudes that Paul adopted because he knew he was trusted. And how he had adopted certain attitudes in his life and his ministry because he knew he had been trusted. There's our question. I believe that we need to take some time and thoughtfully think about it and then give God an answer as a congregation. We do. Because we all want revival. We all want to see the power but we must understand our responsibilities in responding to that.